Our scripture reading for this evening comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2. So thank you so much to those of you that already shared musically. That was wonderful. Let's hear the word of our Lord from Luke, chapter 2. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their town to be registered. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem in the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in clothes and placed him in a manger, because there was no guest room available for them. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. And so they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had seen and heard, which were just as they had been told. Let's pray. Father, as we now come to your word, I pray that you might speak through it to us, your truth, that you might draw us to worship and rejoice in the hope we have in your son, Jesus Christ. You would be with all of us sinners as we prepare our hearts to meet with him, and that you would be with me, a sinner, as I seek to proclaim the good news of his birth. pray this all in his name. Amen. So as we get ready to dive into what is a very familiar story, I want to apologize up front. Um, I want to apologize because in many ways what I want us to do this evening is look at this story and suggest that a lot of the pieces of like our mental picture of it that we have in our head are wrong (laughs) and that our kind of mental nativity scene that we carry around with us actually has a lot of problems with how the Bible talks about Jesus' birth. And I want to do that because I think it really speaks to us in a hopeful and profound way about what it means to meet with Jesus. But I know that that might be a little challenging, so I apologize again. And then let's go ahead and just jump into it and talk about our picture of the nativity. Here, basically is the image that we have of Jesus' birth. This is familiar to anyone who's looked at a Christmas card 
or has something under the tree. Mary and Joseph in a barn hanging out with shepherds and wise men and a star overhead. That is this image that's indelibly burned into our brains. But biblically, there are some issues with it. So first of all, let's start with maybe the most familiar thing you know. So the wise men, there's a couple of problems with how we think about that. First, there's no reason to assume there was three of them. Um, There was three gifts and more than one wise person, but beyond that, there could have been 20 of them. Um, And also, they weren't kings, which the Christmas carol has inclined us all to believe, but um, honestly, the best way to think of them was probably as magicians and not like pick a card magicians, but like people who actually studied magic, which is why they were studying the stars and came up with this idea that this king had been born. But more importantly, they weren't at the nativity at all. They came a lot later, um, maybe as much as two years later, because when Herod finds out that they're looking for this kid, he orders the death of all boys under two years of age. So they just weren't there at the nativity, no guys in funky robes. Um, And also the star probably wasn't hanging over things in the way that we imagine. There is a star, like we mentioned, that seems to appear to announce the Savior's birth. But in the way the story progresses, the star seems to just be up in the sky. And then after the wise men leave Jerusalem, um, it seems to settle over the place where Jesus is staying at that point, which again is much later. So that's probably not there either. And the shepherds... We're there. Don't worry. (laughs) We're not going to take away everything that goes up on that screen. Um, We read about them here. That This night, the shepherds do come. They probably don't have sheep with them, which I know I put up there on the the graphic, um, because that would have been pretty disruptive to the streets of Bethlehem. (laughs) But, um, But they were there. But they almost certainly didn't visit Mary and Joseph in a stable, because there probably wasn't a stable either. And that one, let's maybe talk about. Let's look at our text. So in verse 6, it says that while Mary and Joseph were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. So a couple things. First of all, um, if you have an older translation where it says guest room, it probably says in. Um... And it is true that the Greek word there can mean inns, but um, really the word just meant place for guests. And the issue is that Bethlehem is a town of like 300 people in a world where inns were super, super rare. Like Jerusalem maybe had like two or three, Rome, you know, had some inns. But in a town like Bethlehem, there would not have been like motels out for people to roll in. Instead, this was a world where hospitality was a huge deal. And so here's a picture of what houses looked like in the first century, which is when this was happening. And most homes would have a guest room, either behind the house or connected to it. And the whole idea is that when people traveled, they would go find like distant relatives or people who knew people they knew, and then they would stay in the guest rooms of those people. And it was expected that you would show hospitality that way. And remember, Mary and Joseph were in Bethlehem, Because that's where Joseph's family is from, right? That's where he goes there, because he's from the house and line of David. And so they were almost certainly staying with family, but lots of other people were there too, because the census is happening, and so presumably Mary and Joseph didn't get a spot in the guest room, which is what it says in the text. And we might think, really, there's not room for a pregnant woman in the guest room? But that's also one of those ways where our culture is just different, Um, 
in Mary and Joseph's day, basically older people just got more honor than younger people. And so absolutely, like, grandma and grandpa would have, you know, kicked out uh, the, you know, the pregnant woman and gotten the guest room in that world. Um, and then also, if you're paying attention to that picture, you'll notice something else. And this is maybe the biggest mental adjustment we have to make of all, which is that in the ancient world, unless you were insanely rich, you didn't own stables. Um, instead, your animals lived with you. Um, this was a world where you maybe had, like, one cow and a couple of sheep, and, um, man, if they got stolen or something happened to them at night, like, you were probably going to starve to death. And so in houses, what would happen is at night you'd bring your animals in, and they would stay in your house with you. There'd be this lower part of the house where the animals stayed and this upper part where you stayed, and in between there would be mangers. And so when we look at that biblical account, again, of Jesus' birth, Nowhere does it ever mention a stable. All it says is that he was laid in a manger. And so what happens is that over hundreds of years of us not being used to living with animals, because since like the medieval ages, no one really does that, we just hear, oh, he's laid in a stable, that must mean they're in a barn, and that's our assumption. But in Jesus' world, instead, what is almost certainly the case is that Mary and Joseph were in a house that belonged to some relatives of Joseph, and they gave birth in the lower part of the house where the animals lived. And that was also normal, actually, in that world. In Jewish purity laws, childbirth and helping with childbirth would make you get ceremonially unclean, and nobody really understood all the stuff about germs and sanitation. So a lot of people think that that was actually the normal place that babies would be born, is you would have them go down to that lower part of the house so that you didn't have to go ceremonially cleanse all of the stuff up where you lived. But Mary gives birth down there, since there isn't room elsewhere, and then leaves, lays Jesus in a manger. And that also means, if we can take one more step from how we imagine it, that they probably weren't alone when all of this was happening. The Bible doesn't discuss other people exactly, although we'll get to a little bit later where there's maybe some hints of that even in the text. But in our day, childbirth is like this private thing you go to the hospital for, um, I mean, for most of history, childbirth was kind of public. Not, not in that you'd invite the neighbors, but it was expected that sisters and cousins and aunts and family members would come and be a part of this thing. And, um, and that's kind of what we should expect if, the, if we follow the biblical text, that probably Joseph's relatives helped with the thing. And if all that seems hard to you, um, even though that seems to be what the Bible text says, it's also worth considering that if that wasn't what had happened— the shepherds are terrible people. Because, again, they live in a world where hospitality and caring for people is just this fundamental duty. And if they went to a barn and found a couple there with a newborn baby, and they didn't demand that the couple come home with them and stay with their wives and families, they would have actually been failing at just the basic social obligations of hospitality. So all of that is to say that this event looks a lot different than I think we tend to imagine. And it looks a lot more ordinary than we tend to imagine. Jesus was born in a house with relatives bustling around. It had all the pain and patience and celebration of any childbirth. And something remarkable was happening. We'll get there in just a minute. But the main reason I walk through all of that for us is because I want to suggest that that needs to change the way most of us naturally think about Christmas. So here is the problem at root with that first nativity scene that most of us have in our minds. 
it is so strange and so iconic that for many of us it ends up feeling like a myth. It feels like it's something that belongs in a movie or on a Hallmark card rather than in real life. We can treat the birth of Jesus sort of like the birth of Hercules or King Arthur, this sort of fabled event that belongs in some other world. But one of the points of the gospel stories is that Jesus' birth is eminently ordinary. When we hear these details that he's wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger, we think that means that Jesus was weird in how he was born, and we think, who does that? But in Jesus' day, the answer would have been, Lots of people. Now, not rich people. It is important to recognize in this story that if you were, like, rich or famous, then you wouldn't give birth this way, right? But for, for Jewish peasants in this world, when they read this account and heard about Jesus' birth, they would have been like, yeah, that, that sounds about like it was for us. The birth of Jesus is not something that needs to be slid off into some category of religion or mythology. It is talking about history and biology and a normal birth in our world, just like all of the births that people experience around it. If you were alive on this night in history, this could have happened next door to you, and you could have heard the screams and the cheers and the infant crying. It's crucial that we feel that reality, the ordinariness of Jesus' birth, because that then is what makes the extraordinary part so extraordinary. So back in our text, while all of this is happening, there's shepherds in the fields. And again, that's just where they stayed most nights, because if people stole the sheep that they were watching over, they were in big trouble. But they're interrupted by this army of angels. And here's the proclamation of the angels. They say to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He's the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign you will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. So the angel tells them that in Bethlehem, a Savior has been born, this rescuer and deliverer, that he's the Messiah, he's this coming King of David that Israel is hoping for to bring their salvation. And he's the Lord a title usually reserved for God himself. This divine king child has been born, the angels say. And then they say, go find him wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Which again is not saying, go see this weird thing. But rather the angel is saying, go and see this ordinary newborn child and recognize that in him, something radical and extraordinary is breaking into your world. They are not going to a magic palace to see a baby alien. They are going to see a, to a peasant house, to see a human infant who honestly was roughly the same social class and position that they were, someone like them. And they go and find the child, and then they announce what they've been told. It says when they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. And again, this is kind of that hint that Mary and Joseph aren't alone, because otherwise what people end up with is this mental picture of the shepherds like banging on doors at two in the morning, trying to wake people up to tell them about what they've heard. And maybe they did that, but 
the easiest way to read what the Bible says is just that there were people gathered with, the, with Mary and Joseph, and they announced it to them. We know in verse 19 that Mary's one of the people that they announce it to. And then those people were amazed, because again, what they had just experienced was an ordinary birth. I mean, just picture like Joseph's sisters and cousins are sitting around, they're talking about the labor and delivery with Mary, they're comparing it to theirs, probably talking about how much harder they had it. And then, you know, up, up in the upper part ha- of the house, probably like Joseph is sitting with his male relatives and, you know, they're pouring bowls of wine and giving him grief about how, you know, the easy times are ended. And, and then bam, right, in this ordinary scene, the door bursts open and these shepherds stream in and they're proclaiming that this baby is the Messiah and it's the Lord. And that wasn't news to Mary and Joseph, right? They were aware of this already because the angels had come and told them. Maybe they had even told their relatives to many eye rolls and whispers about their mental health. But then these shepherds show up, and they're saying the exact same thing, and suddenly everyone there has to stop for a minute and wonder, what is going on? Could this really be true? The shepherds certainly thought so. It says that they returned glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. So then here's the question. Why were they praising? It was not in those hours that they'd somehow stepped out of their lives into a fairy tale. It was not because they had left the mortal world and gone into some picture postcard scene that we imagine. It was because God's salvation had stepped into their ordinary lives. Jesus had come into their world, and that meant that their world was starting to change. Here's the point that I want to leave us with this evening. We often think of Christianity as something we come out of the world to experience. There is our normal life with work and play and kids and the mornings that we stumble out of bed and the evenings that we fall asleep exhausted Um, And then we have this, so we have this, like, sphere of ordinary life, and then we have this separate sphere. It's this religious stuff, and that's Jesus, and that's this stuff that you read about in the Bible. And we go visit that religious sphere sometimes on Sundays or on holidays or maybe a little bit during our days when we go read our Bible. But we think then we leave that and we go back into our ordinary lives, and that's somehow separate. But the argument of Christmas is not that we're supposed to come out of our ordinary lives to meet Jesus. It is not that we need to go to some spiritual realm. The argument of Christmas is that Jesus came into the world. He broke into that sphere of work and play and parenting and channel surfing. He is the divine king and Messiah, but he's not over in like Narnia or Candyland or something, but he is in our world the king over our time and place. Which means that Christmas should invite us to have Jesus break into our lives as well. To seek to find him in our ordinary days. To recognize his salvation and reign over every part of our ordinary experiences. He does not belong in some separate sphere, isolated from everything else. Either Jesus is here with us, in every area of life, or he was not born into any of them. Here is how the author and pastor Frederick Buchner put it. 
he said, those who believe in God can never in a way be sure of him again. Once they have seen him in a manger, they can never be sure where he will appear or to what lengths he will go or to what ludicrous depths of self-humiliation he will descend in his wild pursuit of humankind. In holiness and the awful power and majesty of God were present in this least auspicious of all events, this birth of a peasant's child, then there is no place or time so lowly and earthbound but that holiness can't be present there, too. There is no place or time so lowly and earthbound but that God's holiness can't be present there, too. So here's what I would invite you to do tomorrow. Take a moment in the midst of the craziness of Christmas, maybe even at the end of it with the torn wrapping paper all over the floor and the dishes in the sink, and the grandkids or kids fighting over the new toys and the exhaustion that you feel from all of the preparation, pause in the middle of that and reflect on the reality that Jesus came into that. He is in the midst of that. That no part of life is too messy or too ordinary or too human, but that God shows up in it. No part of life is outside the transforming power of the Incarnation. That is what confronted these people on that first night, that God was breaking in to all the sweat and blood and messiness and normalcy of this childbirth. God was arriving into that. And if he can meet them in such a place, then we can never be sure where else he's going to appear. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would make us mindful and attentive of the ways that you come and meet us. I pray that you would be at work in our lives, in every part of them, declaring your reign and bringing your peace. I pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.